0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the Year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching.
1: All right. Uh, teaching text today uh, is coming from Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Would you pray our centering prayer with me? Father in heaven, you made us and you sustain us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you are rescuing us. By the work of your spirit, you are renewing us. As we come today, we admit we are broken and we need you. Whatever you want us to say to us, we want to hear. Whatever you want to do among us, we want to embrace. However you want to shape us, we want to cooperate. As we sing and pray and read and gather at the table, may hope rise, May our hearts align, may sin die, and may Christ shine. Amen.
0: Amen. You can be seated. All right, friends, it's good to see you. I, I have a message this morning that I'm excited to share, uh, something that I think is, is crucial, it's critical for us in our life of following Jesus. Uh, it's a practice, or maybe better said, it's a posture for the Christian life that. If we don't get this thing right, uh, the cost is enormous. Something that's foundational, that's integral, it's critical. And it's a posture I'm going to call uh, the step before the step. And we're going to kind of unpack what that uh, looks like this morning. Uh, the step before the step is, is a posture that comes to us as part of a, the overarching theme of the Bible. Uh, something that God would, God would uh, give us as just basic instructions for living the Christian life. It's also something that fits into the overarching message of the book of Exodus in particular, something that is a theme that you might not have noticed in your first read of the book of Exodus. How many of you are you doing the year of the Bible? Okay, awesome. Way to go. So we're 20 or 30 chapters into the book of Exodus, so some of this is going to be a review, but to get at what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, we need to get in context to the book of Exodus. So Genesis ends and uh, Uh, Jacob and his 12 sons and their families have relocated down to Egypt because Joseph is in a position of power. There's famine in their land, so they've gone down south to to be in a land of plenty. And they stay there for a long time. They're in a position of favor because, because Joseph is buddies with the Pharaoh, and things are going really great for them. But as we turn into the book of Exodus, we see that there's been a generational transition. Something's changed. This is Exodus 1, 6, and 7. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the immediate family of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we've already met in Genesis, has died away. But the family's been incredibly fruitful. And the language of Exodus is actually echoing Genesis chapter 1. Where God instructed Adam and Eve, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it. And Abraham's family, under God's blessing, is multiplying like rabbits. And, and the Egyptians are noticing it, they're filling up the land, and, and uh, the Egyptians take note of just how plentiful this, this nation has become. Uh, the trick is they've been there for a long time in Egypt, and, and all, the book of Genesis is emphasizing so in a, such a huge way that the land, the particular land that God had promised to Abraham mattered. And so the trick was this nation is growing. They're, they're, they're multiplying like rabbits, but they're still in a foreign land. They're not where they're supposed to be. But there's also another problem. This is verse 8 in Exodus chapter 1. Then a new king to whom Joseph and his family meant nothing, uh, came to power in Egypt. And if you've seen some Disney movies or if you were in Sunday school with the felt, you know, stuff, or you just read the Bible, you know kind of what happens. Uh, this new king, uh, who doesn't care about Joseph's family, oppresses them and enslaves them and puts slave drivers over them, and the nation of Israel becomes a slaves in Egypt. And if you've read the book of Genesis and you turn into Exodus, a couple of questions begin to emerge uh, for the reader of the text. One of those questions is, is, you know, it's been 400 years, the, the story tells us. It's been 400 years and there's been no appearance of God. There's been no known evidence that this God who spoke to the patriarchs is still around and still cares. In fact, the only divine activity is just how fruitful this family is. And so the first question that the reader of Exodus is noticing is, how is this God, who made covenant with the patriarchs, going to make himself known, going to reintroduce himself to the family of Israel? The second question the reader of Exodus is asking was, what on earth is God going to do about Israel being in slavery in Egypt? And then the third question is, how is God going to get them back to the land? And the book of Exodus is addressing those three questions. How is God going to reintroduce himself? to the people of Israel? How's God gonna free them from slavery in Egypt? And then how's God gonna get them back to the land that he promised uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And Exodus on the whole, and maybe you'll play catch up today if you've fallen behind in the year of the Bible. Exodus on the whole is this grand public reintroduction of God to the people of Israel. It's also the means by which God establishes his dominance and his reign over the so-called gods of the Egyptians. We won't have time to talk about this a ton, but one really cool feature of the book of Exodus is with each of the plagues that God unleashes on the nation of Israel, each one is addressing one of the gods of the Egyptians. And God saying, there is nobody but me who is Lord over all the earth. And the third thing that, that is, is happening in Exodus that God's trying to do is he's not only going to move this nation back to their, the land that God had promised, but he wants to set them up as a nation set apart with a distinct identity and distinct behavior so this group of people can reveal the glory of God to all of the nations of the earth. All of this is happening uh, in the book of, of Exodus, and it's really, really powerful. Now, have you ever had one of those moments, uh, maybe you're working on a a group project in school? How many just detested group projects? I hated them. Uh, Group projects in school, maybe you're managing a team uh, at work, or maybe you're just trying to get children to do absolutely anything, and you think, man, this would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with all these people. If everybody were just as wise and mature and, you know, godly as me, responsible as me, then things would just go great. Um, it's if everybody would just follow the Dwight Schrute rule. Do you remember the Dwight Schrute rule? Michael said to him, Dwight, don't be an idiot. He said, I think about it every day, and it hurts my feelings every time. He says, when I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do this? And if they would, I do not do that thing. If everybody would just follow the don't be an idiot rule, we would probably do pretty well in life. And as so we talked about, the book of Exodus has these initial presenting problems. They're, they're, uh, God doesn't, uh, the people don't know God. They've just heard rumors of this God who spoke and appeared to their patriarchs and blessed their family line. They're enslaved in Egypt, and they've got to get back to the land. There are these initial presenting problems. But as we, as we turn chapter to chapter in the book of Exodus, we find that there's actually another problem, a, a more pressing but more subtle problem than what is apparent in the text, and the problem is that, that the people will not listen. And that's listen is the key word uh, for today as we reflect on the book of Exodus. So God decides, let's get let's plan in motion. I want to reveal my glory to the nations. I want to reintroduce myself to my people. I want to get them back to the land and establish this nation. So he calls on Moses, Moses who's always been special. Uh, when Pharaoh was instructing uh, the, the Israelites to throw their baby boys in the river, because he wanted to establish his dominance over them, uh, uh, Moses' family put him in a basket in the river, just upriver from the family of Pharaoh. And so he was drawn from the river and raised in a, in a life of privilege, where he understood the power of Egypt, but he also related to the suffering of his people. And all along he had this, this itch to be a part of the solution and so God comes to Moses and, 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 while well, Moses is wandering in the wilderness after he's killed an Egyptian. And God is saying to Moses, just as, as, as Pharaoh's family drew you out of the water, so I'm going to use you to draw my people out of slavery in Egypt. And God appears to Moses and reveals to, to Moses God's divine name, which he'd never told to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's the one that's always printed as the Lord in all caps in your Bible. It's Yahweh. It's uh, I am who I am. And uh, he says, take off your feet. This is holy ground. This is a, a beautiful and a powerful moment. The first recorded appearance of God to a person in hundreds of years. Now, is Moses on his toes? Oh, he bombs it. This is uh, Exodus 3, verses 6 through 8. God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this, Moses hit his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land into a good and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says to Moses, I want to use you. It's my deliverer. I want to use you mightily in this. And four times in a row, uh, Moses objects. Four times in a row, he says, surely not. This is not how it's going to work out. And with every question and doubt and pushback, God responds with assurance. And God responds with miracles, further confirming, not only is this bush not burning up, and I've told you my divine name, but he gives these assurances at the staff, and he promises his brother Aaron to come along. And the fifth time, you think, surely, excuse excuse me, makes me so emotional. Hey, would someone go get me a glass of water, please? Um, I point at my parents. Sorry, mom and dad. (laughs) You've been doing it my whole life. (laughs) Just used to it. Um, The fifth time. The fifth time, surely Moses is going to listen. And the fifth time, this is Moses' response, Exodus 4.13. Pardon your servant, Lord. Would you please send somebody else? At the beginning of this book where we see the enormity of God's task... To reintroduce himself to the people of Israel, to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, and to get them back to the land, God can't even convince the one person He's chosen to lead this grand exodus, and it's it's very concerning for all of us as we get back into the story. Let's give Phil Odom a round of applause here. <laughs> so God can barely convince Moses to do His thing. How is He going to convince Israel? How is He going to convince Pharaoh? So God sends along Moses' brother Aaron, they go back, they go to the Israelites, and they say, hey, look, we don't know how this is going to work out, but God said he's going to deliver us from slavery, and the people are like, well, that would be great if that happened. Have you talked to Pharaoh about this? No, let's go give it a shot. So they go, and they, they talk to Pharaoh, and of course, Pharaoh's not super keen on the idea, as you can imagine, and, uh, and he decides to make life much, much harder uh, for the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. Moses and Aaron go back and report what has happened, and the people are furious. This is Exodus 6, 9 through 12. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement, because of their harsh labor. The Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? And it feels like this project is doomed from the outset. Moses was slow to listen. The Israelites were slow to listen. How's it going to go with Pharaoh? Now, before Moses goes back to Pharaoh the second time to begin pleading his case on behalf of the Israelites, God warns him, look, he's not going to listen, but I can work with that. I can, I can work with that. This is Exodus 7. We're going to do these kind of rapid fire. Each one threw down a staff and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had said. Again, the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. We're going plague by plague here. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Moses' heart, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't listen just as the Lord had said. And then finally, this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the people go. In response to Pharaoh's hardness of heart and his unwillingness to listen, God sent these plagues as grand demonstrations of his power and his superiority over the gods of the Egyptians. And time and again, Pharaoh would call for relief Uh, But but then he would harden his heart and he wouldn't listen and he wouldn't give the Israelites the freedom that they were asking for. Five times in a row, no, 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 no. But then the sixth time, there's a shift. Something happens. This is Exodus 9, 12. After the sixth plague, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. The first five times it happened, Pharaoh's making choices for himself. He hardened his heart own heart and refused to listen but as we move into the second half of the plagues the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he refused to listen to the people so what one commentator said about that he said it's to be noted that in the first five plagues pharaoh's stubbornness is self-willed it's only thereafter that it's attributed to divine causality it's only after the first five that god gets the blame for hardening pharaoh's heart This is the biblical way of asserting that the king's unwillingness to listen has become habitual and irreversible. His character has become his destiny. Enough times of God knocking on the door of his heart and him defiantly saying no, it became ingrained in in his mind and in his heart. He hardened his heart and he would not listen. Now, God knew this was going to come. God was calling his shot from the beginning. His plan was not going to be derailed because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. So we talked about last week with the story of Joseph. God is endlessly creative and can hit anything you throw at him. God was going to turn even Pharaoh's hardness of heart into good. It became an opportunity for God to display his power among the Israelites and and the Egyptians. God was going to use this for good. And the people would know that the Israelites were not let go, not let free, because Pharaoh was a pansy or because he was light on the, uh, on the Israelites. That's not what happened. In fact, for the generations to come, and we see this in the Psalms, we hear this in the tradition of Israel, they say, the Lord let us out with, through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Everybody knew the odds were completely against them. It was a demonstration of God's power that they were made free. But here was the problem. We're beginning to see the, the early signs of this in Exodus, and we're going to see it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Here's the problem. Israel had spent so long being culturally discipled by Egypt, being culturally discipled by Egypt, that a hardness of heart and an unwillingness to listen became the pattern of their lives too. They were in that environment so long, that environment that did not fear the one and true God, environment that was characterized by a hardness of heart and an unwillingness to listen that it seeped into the Israelite community and began to define them. They spent so long under the leadership of Pharaoh and the Pharaohs. And Pharaoh serves as a kind of example of the undisciple, the opposite of a person who's, who's putting down deep roots in, in the God of Israel. He's an undisciple. They'd spent so long under the leadership of this undisciple that they were acculturated and habituated toward unbelief and ignoring the voice of God. They had done it so long and been in an environment for so long that ignored the voice of God and didn't fear God that it became second nature for them. And their habit of refusing to listen to God, refusing to listen to God's prophets, became their fatal flaw, which we're going to read through the rest of the Old Testament. It became their perpetual snare. And we're going to see this theme 300-some-odd times just in the rest of the Old Testament, where because of Israel's failure to listen and to heed the voice of God, they would face tremendous consequences, and some, even in this generation, that's seen God's greatest miracles. And you think, like, okay, if God showed up in the way for us like He did for them, we would believe, right? Right? Or if you ever thought, if I were with the disciples and I saw Jesus come out of the tomb, well, duh, you would believe right then. But we've never seen him. You think, if I were there when God like, made the Nile turn to blood and when the frogs are popping up and gnats, just like God said, would happen, I would definitely believe. But the generation who experienced it didn't believe. Though God had performed the 10 plagues, though they eventually would walk through the sea on dry land... That God would reveal himself to them in fire and smoke on the mountain. They would hear his voice. They'd see the tablets chiseled by the finger of God. Though they would go out in the morning as God had led them out of Egypt and they found their food miraculously provided for them on the ground through the manna. The God would lead them with a cloud by day and fire by night. That God would cause water to gush out of a stone to be provisioned for them. They continued to fail to listen. They refused to believe the voice of God. And that generation who saw the signs, who should be without excuse, ultimately died in the wilderness because they craved to go back to the slavery that they knew so well because they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wouldn't listen and obey the voice of God. There's a book uh, by Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings, which is a really wonderful book. In fact, I like everything by Henry Cloud. And in the book, he talks about three kinds of people. There are wise people, there are foolish people, and there are evil people, and gives instructions on how you deal with different types of people. With evil people, the way that you deal with them is with guns and money and lawyers, and we're not going to talk about that any further. I want to talk about how you deal uh, with, (laughs) that'll be another Sunday, with wise people and with foolish people. Here's wise people. Wise people, you go to them and you confront them about an issue, and you find that talking with them helps the issue get better. When you confront a wise person, they thank you. He told a story in the book, uh, Henry Cloud was brought into this Fortune 500 company, and the chair of the board had invited him to come, and they were meeting with the CEO over lunch, and the plan was over lunch to terminate the CEO. And so with Henry Cloud sitting there, the chair of the board is confronting the CEO and saying, look, you've done this, 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 and this, and here have been the ramifications of that. And you haven't done this, 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 and this, and here's been the fallout, here's been the effect on morale and our bottom line. And Henry Cloud is expecting to see this guy react emotionally and be defensive and put it back on him. And instead, the guy goes, you know what? You are exactly right. I have done those things. Could you guys help me develop a plan so that I can be the kind of leader that our organization needs?" And Henry Cloud said, it was so beautiful, he was almost moved to tears, and it was moving because people don't do that. The guy was characterized by wisdom. Wise people receive correction. Wise people want to learn. Wise people, you talk to them about things and those things get better. Uh, Wise people proactively try to learn, to get better. They ask questions. Jesus uh, was was the the most wise person who's ever lived. And even as a child, Jesus is 12 years old. He sneaks away from mom and dad, and they find him where? In the temple sitting at the feet of the teachers. Jesus, the one through whom all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was sitting at the feet of teachers who he was older than, (laughs) and asking them questions. And they were amazed at his wisdom. Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Wise people want to learn. Wise people are open to feedback. Wise people are proactive and motivated in a desire to get better. The, the, uh, Proverbs 1.5 summarizes wise people really simply. What do wise people do? Wise people listen and add to their learning. Foolish people, on the other hand, you take an issue to a fool, and what do they do? They're going to let you have it. When their deeds are in the spotlight, rather than adjusting to the light, they try to put the spotlight somebody else. Well, I only did that because so-and-so didn't hold it their end of the bargain. They, they, everyone else becomes the problem. I once, not here, not for a long time, uh, a long time ago, I had to confront somebody about behavior. And they came back to me and said, actually, I think it's everyone else on the team who is the problem. You're wrong. It's very much you. Uh, Foolish people resent you for correcting them. Foolish people do not want to learn. Foolish people are not motivated uh, to get better. Now, they may be smart. They may be extremely successful. But foolish people are not motivated to adapt and to change as situation and need arises. They're not hungry to learn and to do better. Foolish people deal with the same problem year after year after year because they, they refuse to learn and to adjust. They say there are some people who have 30 years of experience and there are some people who have one year of experience 30 times because they fail to reflect and to learn and to adapt from the circumstances of life. And so how do you deal with fools? With limits and consequences. This is what the, the Proverbs say very simply about fools. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Let's leave that there for a sec. Reminds me of Psalm 1 that we talked about at the very beginning of the year. Fools find no pleasure in understanding. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight, whose pleasure is in the law of the Lord. And on that law he meditates day and night. Wise people, you talk to them and things get better foolish people you talk to them and you end up getting beaten up things feel worse the initial presenting problem that we dealt with in the book of exodus is that that israel doesn't know their god that they're enslaved in a foreign land and they've they've not they need to get back to the land that god had promised the patriarchs but in time we see that there's actually a deeper issue and the issue was that the people were foolish and they refused to listen and before God gave even one of the Ten Commandments, this was the issue that really needed to be dealt with and confronted. The people were fools. They would not listen. They, they refused God's instruction and so they suffered the consequences. And in the coming months, we're going to keep turning the pages into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the Joshua and Judges and continue and through the period of the kings. And again and again, we're just going to shake our head at Israel. We're going to think: don't you know better? Can't you see how clearly that you keep having this repetitive cycle in your narrative? Remember how God said that to you last year and five years ago and 10 years ago, and yet you're not learning. And just as quickly as we get frustrated with them, we realize, oh gosh, that's my story. My story of continuing to fail to listen, to fail to pay attention to God's discipline in my life, to fail to learn the lesson of consequences for my actions. And just as the Israelites had been acculturated by Egypt, we have been acculturated by American society. And in fact, everything in American culture is working against the development of people of wisdom. Everything in American culture is working against the development of people of wisdom and courage and character. We're being culturally discipled to prize what's loud over quiet fast over slow, speaking out over listening up, sharing your truth over asking questions, style over substance, impulse over contemplation. We value the now and the new and the noisy and whatever will win us public affirmation. And unless we confront our proclivity toward folly, toward the behavior of foolish people, and adjust toward the behavior of what's wise, which is characterized by listening, There is little hope for us as a society, and in particular because because our conversation is within the bounds of the church. There's little hope for the church if we do not cultivate the posture of one who is wise, characterized by listening. If we're not people who are hungry to learn, people who are not willing to receive instruction and correction, the year of the Bible is honestly of no use to us. Your apprentice group, our apprentice groups are of no use to us. Uh, the, the, the next thing that you could do to try to get better is of no use to you if you can't receive instruction, if you're unwilling to learn. Neither miracles nor appearances of God nor anything else, no variety or number or combinations of next steps toward the new you will do us any good unless we learn to take what I call the step before the step, which is to cultivate a posture of humility and coachability. It doesn't matter if you're reading the Bible if you're unwilling to learn anything. It doesn't matter if you have the opportunity to sit under the feet of an incredible master or, or mentor if you're unwilling to receive instruction. The step before the step is the thing that you must do to get the most out of life. It'd be a, it'd be a horrible waste of a year. If at the end of it, we successfully turned the pages of the Bible, but we didn't learn anything, we weren't changed in the process, the step before the step is to cultivate a coachable and a teachable spirit, the kind of attitude that says, I am so hungry to be well and to be wise that I'll take, God, whatever you've got for me. Sad thing is, and just the reality is, we're probably not the best judge of our own character or maturity. Uh, we probably all think we're doing okay. In fact, I was listening to a Harvard Business Review uh, podcast, IdeaCast, and they were talking about self-awareness, two kinds of self-awareness, one's internal, one's external. Internal self-awareness is, you know, the the 47, 57% of us who are Enneagram nerds in the room Like learning about how our temperament, our wiring, or maybe your Myers-Briggs, the stuff that's like, I'm trying to figure out how my brain works and my needs and all these things. That's internal self-awareness, figuring out within yourself how you tick. But external self-awareness is like, what is it like to be around me? And they suggested, I forget what they call it, it was like, they had some horrible term for a lunch, like you take a co-worker out and you ask them, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Ugh. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to know. I like my own self-flattery. But what would it be like to ask the people who are closest to you? The people you live with, the people that you work with, the people that you're neighbors with, the people you do projects with, what is it like to be on the other side of me? When we're working on a project together and you give me pushback or I give you pushback, how do I do? When you're correcting me on something, how does that conversation go? Generally speaking, in working with me, do you find that talking helps or it makes things worse? And even the absence of talking may be an indicator that people have learned that talking is not going to make any sense. Talking is not going to do any better. They've given up on you long ago. They're just adjusting. What would it be like for every one of us to pursue as an act of faith and pursuing wisdom the kind of conversation where people can give us an honest assessment to these kinds of questions? The good news is for all of us that in the final analysis, the biblical perspective on wisdom is the wise are not the ones who know the most, though that may be true, but the wise are the ones who are most hungry to learn, those who are most willing to listen and to learn and to adapt. And the good news is for all of us, there, there are areas of our lives in which we may practice wisdom more readily, and there may be areas of our lives in which we, were, we are fools. The good news is that God is merciful and gives all of us a chance. Jesus tells a story in Gospels called the parable of the sower. A sower goes out to seed, uh, to, to, to scatter seed, and he's really liberal. He's, he's almost wasteful. He's throwing it everywhere. And some of it lands on the, on the path where the birds come and they eat it up. Some of it lands among the rocks where it sprouts up quickly, but because it has no room for roots, it dies as the sun comes out. Some of the seed lands among the thorns, but in his interpretation of it, he says, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out. And some of it lands among good soil where it puts down roots and it sends up shoots and it produces good fruits. He tells this beautiful story of all that it's done. God God is the faithful sharer of the words, farmer who's throwing out opportunity in his word to everybody, giving everybody equal opportunity to respond. The idea would be that we would be people with good soil, would be wise when God's word is sown in us, we are responsive and receptive to it. But the good news is that our soil can be tilled, that we can change. Um, I'm not much of a farmer, I like doing yard work, but you take a, a plot of land You know, you get some sweat equity in removing those rocks that are getting in the way and pulling up the thorn bushes and tilling the soil and putting in uh, the seeds. It's hard work, but that's the work of discipleship of responding to the God who generously sows, gives all of us a chance, but also inviting God, the faithful farmer, to do that work in us of uprooting the thorns and moving the stones, allowing his Holy Spirit to do a work that's rejuvenating, cultivating our soil so that we can be wise people, listening, adapting, responding to his word, and producing fruit in our lives. And in seeking to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, we can talk about our false narratives. We can talk about the Sermon on the Mount. We can teach through the whole Bible. But all of it is going is to go off course if we don't have this one thing right. If we're not people who are willing to be shaped. If we're people who are not willing to be corrected and trained and instructed to get those flabby muscles strengthened as we exercise together as a community. All of it is a waste. All of it, we're going to spin our tires unless we are willing to be shaped. And we want that. You know, Kyle shared a story last week. Ben has shared. Lots of you have shared your story. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the thing that characterized our community is we are so hungry for wisdom. We are so hungry to be well that it becomes our culture where we're habitually confessing to each other how we've jacked things up. Where habitually, the young people in the congregation are going to the older people in the congregation and are saying, "Will you teach me how to be an adult? <laughs> Will you teach me how to be wise? Will you teach me how to make good decisions with my finances and my sexuality and my relationships?" If we were a community, we were actively pursuing being well together a community where we are known for growing healthy humans because we're saying no to the obstinance that rejects advice and saying yes to repentance, saying yes to uh, admitting our need, being hungry for God's word, hungry for mentors, all of that. Wouldn't it be amazing if that were what characterized our community? Jesus, again and again, as he told the parables, said, whoever's got ears, listen, let them hear. The Proverbs say that wisdom cries out from the street corners. Is anybody going to listen? And John in the book of Revelation says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And maybe to you in your own way, God is speaking about those rocks in the middle of your garden that are getting in the way of the seed being sown or those, those thought patterns or those conversational patterns that are pushing back advice that could change your life. Maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you today, this is a great time to ask for help. This is a great time to invite God, the faithful farmer, to do a good work in you and to ask for the help to cooperate with it. I hope that we're we're pulling out the best in each other, that the fruits of the Spirit characterize us, that we're growing well humans because we are leaning into this and every good thing that God has for us as a community. And it takes a community to live this out together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the gift we have of retrospect. Both on our own lives, we have the opportunity to learn uh, from, our, from our mistakes, from our patterns, but also from the story of Israel where, you know, if you, if you depersonalize it, it feels like, oh man, why were they so stupid? Why are they slow to listen? Yet we realize again and again that's us. Uh, there are these patterns that we keep falling into, self-destructive thought patterns, feelings of unworthiness. Uh, a desire not to be instructed or to seem like one who needs to be taught something, Uh, a pride that keeps us from confessing our sin and making us look bad, Uh, a a distaste for the things that take hard work. All of these things are working against the path of wisdom that you invite us to by the Spirit. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do a deep work in our church now and, and forever, that we be characterized as people of wisdom, people who are hungry to learn, People who are are the opposite of Pharaoh, who do not harden our hearts, who have soft and and tender hearts uh, to you, who are wise, who are discerning, and who are so hungry for every good thing that you want to teach us. And thank you that even in our folly, our folly doesn't define us. We're defined by the love of Jesus for us, shown to us on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that while we were yet sinners, while we were at our most foolish, while our hearts were hardest and we refused to listen, you died for us. And you continue to invite us by the Holy Spirit to join you in being made new to the glory of your Father. So as we come to the table today, we just admit how deeply we need you. I pray that you'd make this bread and this juice something so much more than that for us, that you'd make it to be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we could be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Come, Lord Jesus, assure us, convict us, shape us, and unite us in following Jesus together. In his name we pray.